You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. I had the honor and pleasure of sitting down with one of my dear friends of well over 20 years, Mr. Bobby Gleason, a.k.a. Bobby G., Bobby G. began his spirit industry career in 1984 in South Florida, and since then, he has traveled the world with his tool bag, making amazing cocktails everywhere. He is an inspiration to many bartenders, many beverage professionals, and he has a heart of gold. Bobby's saying is shake it hard and shake it with a smile. And in this episode, he tells us all about his love for our industry, as well as some of his favorite classic cocktails. So sit back, relax, grab your favorite Jim Beam cocktail, and enjoy the show. Bobby, welcome to Served Up. I'm so excited to have you here today. Well, Bridget, you know, I'm always happy to talk with you and we always have great conversations and I'm really looking forward to this. Awesome. Can you tell our listeners how you got your start in the beverage industry? It started for me way, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I'm really going to date myself here, but my actual, I've been in the nightclub industry since 1979, 1980, uh, working, you know, running as valet, you know, running parking cars and things like that. And I actually didn't start bartending until 1984, and that was in a nightclub in South Florida, and uh, fell in love with it, and still doing it today. And and what a great career move it was for me then. Where Where did you go from? from well, I was I was 1980s to the 90s to today. Don't keep us sure. hanging, Bobby. All right. Well, uh, I started in Wisconsin, where I was born and raised, and I moved to South Florida and started working at nightclubs there and, you know, running valet. Then I started to DJ and I, you know, I love DJing and that, and it was fun. So then I, I went to work inside as a bar back and, you know, I, I often say jokingly, you know, that the reason I started bartending is so women would have to talk to me, <laughs> you know, because they had to, if you're going to order a drink, you had to. And then I, I quickly learned that, you know, if I, they weren't coming to see this face, so I had to make good cocktails, and it was something that I strived to do. I was, I've always had that work ethic to try and be the best, whatever it is you're doing, you know, be the best. You know, when I was valet, I wanted to be the fastest and the best. And then as a bar back, I really worked hard, you know, to learn that and then wanted to learn how to bartend. And I was quite fortunate that I had some pretty strict guys that I worked with behind the bar. And the guy's name was Billy Christos, uh, not the Billy Christos, the actor, but my friend Billy Christos, the bartender. And, 
And he always told me, I said, I want to bartend. And he gave me a bottle, a jigger, and a shaker and said, go home and learn how to pour. And I had to, we learned, you know, free pouring. So the, you know, the process was pouring to the, into the shaker, pouring the mixing tin, measuring the jigger, pouring the mixing tin, measuring the jigger. And you had to do that until you got it right. And so I came in and I said, I got it down. He goes, all right, give me a half ounce. I'd pour it, three quarter, I'd pour it, an ounce. I'd pour it all the way up. And then he said, now pour it with your left hand. And I go, what? He goes, well, you got two hands, don't you? And so I had to go back and learn how to pour with my left hand as well. And so that's how I learned was pouring, was free pouring. And that was in South Florida and in nightclubs. So that's where you learn speed. You learn how to be fast in a nightclub because business comes all at once and you got to get it out as fast as you can. And then I went from South Florida. So we're talking Pompano, and then I moved up to Delray Beach and then came to Las Vegas with some people that owned a hotel. And they made me director of beverage at the hotel. We had one bar. So it wasn't a big job, but hey, it was there. And we didn't get a gaming license. So we built a nightclub in Las Vegas that opened up. And I worked in a couple of different nightclubs in Las Vegas. And we worked that for um, two years and then was asked to come to Miami. Uh, some of the people that I first worked with in, in South Florida owned a series of clubs called Shooters on the Water. And they were in a lot of different cities. And they went from Fort Lauderdale up to Boynton Beach, which is where I went to work for them. They opened a place. They have one in Cleveland. They have one in Buffalo. Anywhere they could put this place on the water. So it was a big restaurant on the, on the bottom and then a nightclub on the top. And so they bought a nightclub in Miami at 1235 Washington Avenue in Miami. It's been many different things. At that time, it was called Decos. You know, we had a capacity of about 8,000 people we could put in there. It was, it was big, big club. So our, my role was to come and manage the bars and get the, the liquor under control because the liquor cost was just through the roof. With Bobby Albino and I, our role was to get the place ready to sell. And they gave us three years to sell it. We want you to sell this place within three years. Well, we ended up selling it in eight months. And so once we sold it, I needed another job. And that was 1989 when I came back to Las Vegas. And then I opened up the Mirage and then went on in 93 to open up Treasure Island. And then in 98, which is where we met at the Bellagio, when I opened the Bellagio. And I yeah, worked now you're and- dating me. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> remember that. I remember meeting you in 1998. And those would, that's really what I like to call. I mean, I know we all call the 90s and, and even today, like the new golden age of the cocktail. But I do think that we had something incredibly special happening during that time at the Bellagio. I know as a myself, as a bartender during that time, um, it changed me for good. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's where we both met Tony Abuganum. And, you know, I had heard the term, you know, master mixologist before from reading, you know, industry magazines and seeing all that kind of stuff. And I'd heard about Dale DeGroff and, you know, learned about him. But this, but when we met Tony, it was, it was special. You know, Tony was, 
he was he had the title of master mixologist at the Bellagio, and he was running that whole program. And I often say to people that Tony didn't bring us in. His job wasn't to teach us to bartend. What his job was, was to, you know, create the new cocktails. And he taught us on how to look at cocktails in a different way. And the biggest thing that Tony did for us there, I believe, was was the education and bringing in, you know, master distillers, ambassadors, brand owners, and people like that. I mean, huge industry influencers that came in because what we did at Bellagio, I truly believe changed the world, the beverage world worldwide. I mean, globally, because there was a study once that showed, and I don't know if it's still accurate to this day, but there was a study that said that we, sh- we served 60,000 cocktails a day at the Bellagio, and all of them were premium cocktails using premium ingredients and fresh ingredients. I mean, we had to all squeeze our limes by hand. Right. You know, and, and that showed the world that you can do it on a grand scale. Right. And I think that what some folks don't understand, like during that time when we worked in Las Vegas, everything was comped, folks, meaning it was typically free. And so to think about that, most folks didn't even have to pay for these delicious cocktails. And yet here we are doing it with the utmost integrity um, so that we kept uh, creating this influx of regular customers in a place where that just should not have happened. It is really hard to create a regular following, right? At a casino bar. It's very different than maybe like your local watering hole. But because we were doing something so special and so different, like you just said, you know, Bobby, with some fresh ingredients and doing it not the easiest way. I mean, I can tell you it was the first time in my life that I had used a lime press outside of my kitchen, right? Yeah. You're using it behind the bar. But I yeah. do believe so much because we all believed in the program and we believed in what we were doing, which made it successful and it's still successful today. I would love to hear from you, Bobby, because you've been in the industry for a while, right? Some mm-hmm. of the, the really kind of the fun changes that you have seen over the years. I think the, the fresh ingredients is, is probably the biggest thing. Because in the days when you started, once, once soda guns and juice guns got behind a, a nightclub bar, that's all it was. There was never, you know, the freshest ingredients that you had was pineapple juice from a can. You know, that was, that was about it. And so that change just, I mean, really transformed it. And, and it's, you know, I once heard, you know, our dear friend Livio Laro was was moderating a panel that we were doing at a nightclub and bar show. And Livio's statement to open up the round of, of debate was, okay, fresh ingredients, been there, done that, what's next? And I'm like, well, hold on, Livio. <laughs> we have done that here, but until it's done everywhere, we haven't got there yet. The biggest thing when I'm talking to, you know, different accounts, whether it's a national account, whether it's a local bar, or even somebody just at home that want to make cocktails, you cannot replace fresh. And, you, and the biggest impact that anybody can have on their beverage program is to use fresh lemon juice, fresh lemon and lime juice, because that's the juice to use the most in most of your cocktails. So if you make that change, you elevate your entire program. 
Absolutely. And, you know, and what we've seen today is that there's much more integrity behind the bar. Even the smallest local bar, they're studying cocktails. Consumers know more today than everybody because you, you have your phone, you have access, instant access to everything you wanna know. So bartenders really need to know these cocktails. So if someone asks you for a recipe, you can either look it up or ask that guest, you know, how would you prefer it? And so we're seeing, you know, I, I always tell everybody, you need to study your classic cocktails, know what those recipes are, because today new cocktails are simply variations of those old classics, mm -hmm. changing an ingredient here and there, adding something different to add more, you know, flavor, complexity. And we're seeing things go full circle. When I first started in that nightclub in 1984, and I got my opportunity to bartend, you know, I, I was learning how to bartend, working in the service well while doing my bar backing. And then one day, a bartender calls in sick. And, and I, I'll do it, I'll do it, you know, but you got a bar back. I'll do them both. I'll do them both. So I had that opportunity. I would I'd go down to the bar and someone would ask me um, for a zombie. Right, so I'd run down to the bartender and go, hey, how do you make a zombie? They go, uh, put, some, put some rum in it, some pineapple juice, make it red, send it out. All right. So I go down, I make a drink, some juices, put some grenadine in there, made it red, send it out. Oh, that's great. So a little while later, someone comes and asks me for a scorpion. Ah, I run down to the bartender. Hey, how do you make a scorpion? Uh, put some rum in it, some uh, apricot brandy, some juice, make it red, send it out. And I turned around, and I go, there's got to be more to it than that. And, and that's what really spurred me to start studying and looking up these drinks. And then through that, I would also look up the history of the drinks and learning this, the great stories that are out there. And I think that's one of the greatest things about being behind the bar is learning those stories of not just the brands, but the cocktails and, and the impact that they had on history. And then sharing that with the guests, you know, when you have that opportunity to be able to talk to a guest, it's just awesome. And for the folks that work in, you know, the small local bars, you know, they have stories all the time, you know, from that local area. When we worked in the casino, our following came in, in stages. You know, I would see the same people every February, they would come into town in February because that was their vacation time, or they'd come in town in October or whatever month it was. You know, you'd see those people every year and it was always so exciting to see them and, and have just that, that fun with that. Mm -hmm. And then there was the time, you know, I, and I truly believe what you say that 98 was the, the really the start of the new golden age of cocktails. And then I think it got into, you know, in the early 2000s, when, you know, all of a sudden, every magazine that wanted to write an article about bartenders, it wasn't the bartender, then it became the mixologist, and then it was the master mixologist. And uh, so you go to your local bar, which most of these guys that are writing these stories live in New York. So they go to their New York bars. Mm -hmm. And so the New York got all the attention. And then all of a sudden, pretentiousness starts to weasel its way into the world of mixology. And then you'd get these guys that, you know, the, with the vest that's way too tight and the big handlebar wax mustache all curled up. And, 
you know, it would take you 15, 20 minutes to get a drink if they deemed that you were, you know, oh, all right, I'll serve you. You're at my bar. You're in my presence now, you know, and then all of a sudden they just started to get too pretentious. And I've, I've always told people that if you walk into a bar and you say, you know, I'd like to have a cosmopolitan. And if the bartender says, ah, we don't do vodka here, just say, okay, get up and go somewhere that does. Because as a bartender, my role is to make you happy. Mm-hmm. And whatever it is that you want. Now, if I'm in a bar that I don't have the ingredients to do that, now it's my role to say, well, I'm sorry, I, I don't have the ingredients to make that specific cocktail, but let me make you something to see if you like it. And then once you get that customer happy with one drink, you can take them anywhere you want to go. Yeah, you know, I agree with you 100% on that. I think that we did go through just kind of like a selfish phase, right? And um, with Tobin Ellis, one time he came out to Chicago through our advanced um, academy here at Southern Glaciers. And he told a room full of bartenders that if you're taking 20 minutes to make a cocktail and you're not making what the guests ask, it's the same thing as masturbating, pretty much. (laughs) It's just you're pleasuring yourself. You're not actually doing anything for the guest. And so I do think that now, fast forward many years later, that hospitality has really put its foot forward and all the other stuff is just gravy, right? If you have a smile on your face, even if you're not making the best cocktail in the world, but you can hold that conversation, that that's someplace that I'd rather sit than somebody that, um, is all about themselves. So I think that we're in a really cool new age of hospitality. So I would love to, once again, kind of fast forward from the Bellagio to where you are today. How did you get started with Beam Suntory as their master mixologist? Well, I'd been working with, with Beam for a long time. Uh, my first introduction to the family at, was when I was at Bellagio, you know, we had testing when we would do classes and we had testing and I was fortunate enough to have the high score on the bourbon exam, which won me a trip to Kentucky during bourbon festival. And that was where, you know, I went with, with Tony and with the beam rep in from Las Vegas, which is actually the state manager of Las, of Nevada. And then uh, our sales rep for beam from at that time, it was DeLuca. So we all went to, Kentucky. And, you know, we had a wonderful tour of the distillery with Jerry Dalton and learned so much from him. And then we had dinner at the famous Beam house and with Booker No and Fred No. And, and one of my, my favorite pictures I have is with Freddie Jr., who at the time was uh, 11, 12 years old, I think. And I was playing football with him in the backyard and, and we were drinking and, you know, just and Booker is cooking you know, the pork chops on the grill. And I'm standing there with Tony and, and Booker is pouring, you know, he does his flambe with the bookers and I'm grabbing Tony. I'm going, that bottle's going to explode. We got to grab him, you know, get ready. And, you know, Booker just had it all down, but that got me involved with beam. And I started to do things. I wanted to go to the nightclub and bar show and I asked for passes to go. And so I was at the nightclub and bar show and there's the beam booth. And I went in and 
And uh, I'm looking around. They, they, these, at this point, these guys were all working in national accounts and they're all vice presidents and stuff. And I met Ken Ruff and those guys there. And, and so I look over and I said, uh, hey, can I try some of that Jim Beam Black over there? They said, yeah, sure, go ahead. It was just on a little table. And so I reached behind the table. I got a cup and I got the bottle. I pour myself a little cup and all of a sudden I'm surrounded at the table. And people are like, hey, can we get one? Can we get one? Can we get one? And I look over and the guy said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And so next thing you know, I'm just pouring. And I look over at the guys. I go, you know, hey, I don't mind helping out. And it was like two hours later. <laughs> I said, I don't mind helping out, but I really want to go see the show. <laughs> and they said, well, we thought you were having fun. I go, I was having fun, but I really want to go see the show. And that inspired them later that night. They came by and they said, hey, would you like to come and do this event for us and, you know, make up some cocktails and pour this product? And so I started working, you know, little conventions for them. And then eventually they, they asked me, you know, to come speak about the product somewhere. And, and I started telling them, I go, you know, you need somebody. So this was right around 2000. I said, you, you need somebody on, on staff to do this for you all the time. And, and I want to be that guy. And so eventually, uh, I left Bellagio, opened a little local bar here, not open, but they had just recently got their spirits license. So I helped design the program at Nora's Cuisine and worked with some great people there and was so honored. And still to this day, I, I still feel like family because they make me feel like family there. And they always win the award, you know, for the best of Las Vegas, best cocktails off the strip, which is, you know, a category. It's all its own. But as I was working there, I had interviewed for a position at the Rio, and then I hadn't heard anything from them. You know, I went and I said, well, I guess I didn't get that. And all of a sudden, people from the Rio start coming into Nora's. Hey, what are you doing? Hey, make us this. Hey, make us that. Hey, make us this. Okay. And I'm doing all that while I'm still working a very, very busy bar. And so I'm doing all this. And my friend Gaston Martinez, he said, what are they here for? I said, I don't know. They're just getting a bunch of cocktails. He goes, you're leaving, aren't you? I said, no, they haven't asked me anything. And it turned out that was kind of part of my interview. And so eventually they came back and asked me to come to the Rio and run their mixology program at the Rio. Which I, said, I remember was very different than our mixology program at the Bellagio because of the flair component which yeah. I would love for you to maybe tell some of our, tell our listeners exactly what flair bartending is. They might not be so familiar because it's not so much a thing today as it was and um, what that was like. Well, I, I personally feel that everything that we do as a bartender, to me, the definition of flair is attracting someone's attention to elevate their experience. And believe it or not, I've, I've often seen the, you know, we always try to find out where was the Boston shaker invented, you know, and it was often said that the bartender would put two glasses. They originally started with a, a mixing glass and like a wine glass, and they would hold those together and shake the, the cocktail together to create a flair for the guests to see. So that's what it was to me. Then it got involved into the movie cocktail, one of those famous you know, Fridays was, was great with the flipping of the bottles and doing all that action and really drawing someone's attention to it. And what, when I went into the Rio, I said, you know, I told him, I said, I don't do flair. And it's, you know, you need someone to teach that. 
and I'm going to teach other, I'm going to teach them about spirits and all that. And so I came up with, with the idea and, and I, I believe it's true. What the flare bartender does is attracts people to the bar. They get their attention. They come to see what they're doing. So what I'm going to teach you is how to keep those people there because yeah, you can juggle and do all this and that. But if you give somebody a cocktail, that's no good. They're not going to get an order another one. They're going to get up and leave. But if you can do that and make a good quality cocktail, you'll keep them in their seat. And I've got to work with some of the world's best flair bartenders, you know, Christian Delpesh, uh, Flippy, uh, all these guys that I worked with at the Rio that were just amazing bartenders. And what they could do, you know, Jane Hadhazy every night would get on top of a bar and balance 10 bottles on his forehead. You know, he would have one up and two lane and, and have a stack of bottles on his forehead. He would walk all the way around that bar and they had never seen him drop a ball. Never. It was some, uh, just amazing what they, these guys can do. And I often, I've always said that if it comes to a, a, a competition, which, you know, there's a lot of different competition styles, a flare bartenders are the best at free pouring accuracy. I agree. It is, it's amazing what they can do. It and truly I think, is. Yeah. With, with what we do, what you would call our style, classic style of bartending, you know, then the whole craft thing came in. I think what's happening today is that bartenders are using a jigger and it's becoming a crutch for them. Because if you ask them, can you free pour? Can you pour me an ounce and a half? Well, yeah, sure. And they pick up their jigger. I said, no, not with a jigger. Just pour me an ounce and a half. Today, many of them can't do it because they're, they're so focused on the jigger. And then there was, there's another trainer out here, and he is adamant about using the jigger. He goes, no, you do not ever pour a drink without using a jigger. And I said, how about you line up 10 mixing tins, and I line up 10 mixing tins. You pour with the, I'll get, I'll get a flare guy in here to free pour. You pour with the jigger. He'll free pour, go as fast as you can, and then we measure to see who's most accurate. And I would, I would tell you that the free pour is going to be more accurate because there's so many variables on the jigger. You know, it has to be flat, has to be to the meniscus. But when you're free pouring with a jigger, it's always on a little bit of an angle. It's great for the house because you're typically pouring less, but you're not pouring accurately. Right. I think that so, that's the, the measuring of cocktails is just like the greatest debate. It's older than time at this point, you sure. know, like either you do love to measure or you just don't. It's so funny. There's no like happy medium. If you want to like start like a heated debate between two beverage professionals, that's a good place to start and then go into politics and religion. But first start off with how do you measure your <laughs> cocktail, right? Don't you agree? Absolutely. Oh my but goodness. For me, I, I think the absolute measure is your pour cost at the end of the day. Is my pour cost proper? Because, mm -hmm. you know, there's always, you know, if you're looking at, if you're selling your spirits by the ounce, I mean, you're paying for it by the ounce, you know, technically. So you're basing your pricing on your ounce. And, and in today's world, I don't know when it started, but ever since I started in the industry, a standard pour was an ounce and a half. And, you know, being in my position with Beam Suntory, 
I'm required to put my cocktails out by parts mm -hmm. when it's going out into consumer facing. Now, when I'm teaching bartenders, that's different. You know, I have to give them ounces because they have to be precise. But we use parts when we put out recipes. And you see in other magazines, many industry magazines, I see other, you know, mixologists that are out there, they have their cocktails out with, you know, a two ounce is their, their base pour. Now, we would use two ounces in a cocktail like an old fashioned because that's the only liquid in there, you know, and martinis would always typically, typically on your register, you know, if you're working, you would have that bump, you know, mm -hmm. if you make an old fashioned, it's the, the spirit plus the bump or the martini bump or whatever it was, you know, that would bring the price up because you're pouring more. Right. Now, today we see that standard pour. And I just think that it's because as a bartender, we're responsible for our guests' consumption. And, you know, that we have a program, it's called Drink Smart. You know, everybody, it's, you know, you got to have control of what you're pouring because you're responsible for that guest. Now, the guests are going to do pretty much what they want to, but we have to be in control of what we serve. And it's important, not only behind a bar that you're working at, even if you're at home, you know, you know responsible service doesn't end at a commercial bar. It also, if you're hosting a party at home, you're responsible too. And, and I think having those proper pours is, is the key to making a well-balanced cocktail. You know, and one, of, one of the things that I've always said and been quoted in many magazines, that a good cocktail is not a strong cocktail, but a well-balanced cocktail. Sure. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, um, one of the things that I think our listeners would love to know more about, if you can talk to us about the United States Bartenders Guild, you know, what it is and how it really helped your career to flourish. Uh, yeah, that's a, a fantastic point. And one that's, that's very near and dear to my heart is the, the United States Bartenders Guild started in the 40s and 50s. And we were actually, the U.S. Guild was actually underneath the United Kingdom. And it became so big in the U.S. that there was chapters everywhere all across the U.S. And it became so big that if you remember it, when Jim Beam was doing decanters, they actually made a decanter of the United States Bartenders Guild. The Lenny. Like, 1973. Yeah. That's, that was have, the year. Yeah. I have yeah. a couple in my, my collection, and uh, that's called the Lenny. It was in honor of uh, Lenny, who was one of the presidents, and wearing what was the USBG uniform, the red jacket, blue tie, white shirt. You know, it was awesome. And it became so popular, but then it just kind of like faded away. And it was down. There was one chapter left in Southern California that, you know, some guys were just hanging on. And then Livio Laro came to Las Vegas and he got with Tony and Francesco Lafraconi and said, hey, we need to start a chapter here. What can we do? And, and I know you were part of that as well. And we were founding members and we had about 30 members in, the, in Las Vegas and we kept growing and we kept growing. And for us, it, it put us into that competition style and we learned more about the elegance behind the bar. And for me, it it taught me more about presentation and how to learn that presentation because I often tell every young bartender, you know, if I'm speaking with a big group of young bartenders, say, listen, every time you're behind a bar, you're on a stage. 
and you need to present well. So everybody's watching what you're doing. And then the chapter grew. California grew so big and they had people in L.A. and then people in San Francisco. So they started another chapter there. And then we became ambassadors. And as the ambassador role, it was to expand the guild. Now, here we are today with, I believe, the numbers over 65 chapters nationwide. And it's just fantastic. It's been such a great organization and a brotherhood of bartenders. And then it expanded to, you know, friends of the industry, you know, people that the writers and, you know, every supplier wanted to be a part so they could support. And I, I know it's in the millions of dollars of what the suppliers gave to the USBG to give out to the bartenders and our, our friends in need in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you make such a great point of calling it like a, a brotherhood, sisterhood. Like for me, it was definitely a family and it, you know, especially early on living in Las Vegas, when my family was here in Chicago, Illinois, my parents, my cousins, aunts, uncles, everybody. And so when you live in a transient town, when you don't know anybody, um, it, it really is an organization that brings a community together in such a special way, you know, just like, like minds, right. Yeah. Like minds that have the same passion about something can be very powerful. And I, and I think that that's what changes um, not only our community, but the world. And so the money that the USBG was able to raise during the pandemic through their foundation was astounding. And the help that it gave to so many that, that really needed some necessities during that time, it was uh, a beautiful thing to witness. And so I think that the growth of the USBG and their growing pains as well. That's the other thing, you know, the United States Bartenders Guild is not that old when we think about it. You right. know, this is not a 200 year old organization. They are gone through some learnings and they came back even stronger than ever pulled together as a family. And um, I think it's just going to be bigger and better in years for years to come. It's something that I'm very proud to be a member of. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the opportunities that it offers, because the United States Bartenders Guild or the USBG is part of the International Bartenders Association, and that spans 50, 60 countries. And we're a part of that. And the opportunities for a member of the USBG to travel internationally, are they're there. I mean, I got to go to Italy and Still to this day, my, my favorite part of Italy is Ischia. And I got to go there and, and compete with, with our, you know, our, my friend Ray Serp, our friend Ray Serp and, you know, our dearly departed Nick Gallegos. The three of us went to compete in the Italian Bartenders Guild. And I remember going over with, you know, and I told Livio, I said, I'm really excited about this. And he goes, Bobby, you're not going to win. I said, but no, Livio, I got a really good cocktail. I mean, it's really good. And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, no doubt. The cocktail's great. But an American's not going to come and win an Italian bartending competition. I'm just telling you right now. I'm like, I, you know, now I'm getting all fired up. You know, I, now I want to go over and win. And when I got there, man, did I get a lesson. And I, I'm always really, really proud to say that I was the highest non-Italian bartender I was the highest finishing non-Italian bartender in the IBIS competition. And all right. So I was 15th out of hundred plus that were there, but it was, it was pretty awesome. That's and, pretty great. 
but to see what they did with the garnishing of their cocktails and their method of bartending was truly astounding. You know, we went with the attitude that we're representing our country. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to be the friendliest person in the whole place. And I had a little translation book with me that I'm trying to read and translate from English into Italian. And I don't speak any Italian. So I'm trying to say things. And, and we met this wonderful couple there that they, they travel, they manage bars and, and resorts. And so they would winter in Switzerland and summer in Italy. It's because that's where the money would go. So they would follow these big resorts. And, and the girl is looking at me. She, she starts laughing at me. She goes, what are you trying to do? I said, I'm just trying to talk to these girls. I'm trying to be friendly and talk to these girls. And, and she says, where are you learning to say this? I said, from this book here. She goes, let me see that. She goes, do you know what you're asking them? I said, I was, thought I was asking them, you know, just casual conversation stuff, you know? And she goes, you're asking them if you can wash their feet. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get any takers, Bobby? <laughs> I go, is that a bad thing? You know? So they're all just laughing at me. And I'm like, and uh, so she told me that this book is so off. And she, they took the book and said, they all sat there and read it and was just laughing. And so, but we made friends in Italy and it was, it was just fantastic. And that was all because of the USBG. And, you know, still to this day, you know, we have our advocacy team. Robin Nance is the associate with that. So he's, she's a liaison with that. And I've always said, I will do anything, anywhere, anytime for the USBG. Yep. Amen Just- to that. Amen to that. You know, something else that I would love to talk about is why are you in the Guinness World Book of Records, Mr. Bobby G? <laughs> well, that, that was fun. We, um, I got a call one day from uh, our marketing department, and at the time we were still in Deerfield, and they said, uh, we're looking for someone in Las Vegas that could do this Guinness Book of World Records to make the most cocktails in one hour. And I just said, well, I can do that. And it got dead quiet on the phone. And she says, really? I said, yeah. And then I said, what are the rules? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, and she said, well, you know, Guinness said that every cocktail had to be at least three ingredients. Each cocktail had to be completed before you started the next one. So as we bartend, you know, we'll ice a bunch of glasses together and, you know, pour everything in one and then top them all off. But with this one, you had to make a cocktail, take it away, make it, take it away, make it, take it away. And then each cocktail had to be different. And I said, yeah, sure, I could do that. And she's like, okay, well, We'll get back to you. And then I get a call from my boss, uh, who was John Meisler at the time. And he calls me up and she said, he said, yeah, she said, you said you could do this. I said, yeah, John, I can do this. He goes, have you done it? I said, no, I haven't done it, but I know I can do it. He goes, well, you're going to have to come in here and show us. Okay. So I went into Deerfield and we set up a little table and you know how tables are really low. So that was a detriment right there. So the other rules from Guinness were I could ice more than one glass at a time, but no one could touch anything. They could bring me glasses and set them down. They could put ice in my bin, but that was it. If I needed another bottle, they could set it down on the table, then I had to grab it. They couldn't physically hand me anything. So I had to do everything myself. So I got 
you know, those rectangular trays that the cocktail servers used to use in the, in the casinos with the little uh, eight ounce highball glass that they use in the casinos. And you could fit 24 of them on a tray. So one big scoop, fill it up with ice. I had on my left hand, I had all the different base spirits that we carried, you know, and at the time we're still part of Absolute. So I'd have, you know, Jim Beam and have the, all the Absolute flavors, all of our tequilas, Canadian Club. And then on my left hand, on my right hand, I had all the DeKuyper flavors. So I would pick up two DeKuyper bottles in my right hand and one bottle in my left hand, and I would pour, set it down. And keep the two in one hand, set my left hand down, grab another bottle and pour. And I'm just doing this. When I got through with uh, 24 of them or 12 of them, because I had 12 base spirits, I would put this down and then pick up another DeKuyper flavor. So I had three ingredients in every glass and each one was different. I technically met all the rules of Guinness. And if there's one thing you ever learn from a flair bartender when it comes to a competition, they know all of the rules. They read them and study them. So I knew all the rules and I knew that I was within the Guinness guidelines. And so I'm up there just joking around and laughing. And I see John Meisler running around and, you know, we're on the fourth floor in Deerfield and, and John comes up and he goes, how's he doing? And uh, uh, the guy um, Stoddard who was oversaw the Kuiper and, and Canadian club he looks over at John, he goes, he's at 220. And John goes, oh my God, when did he break the record? He said, he passed the record in 18 minutes. I go, that's right, Johnny boy. You didn't <laughs> think this guy could do it, did you? And I ended up, and that was my practice. And I just practiced and I did it a uh, little over 700 cocktails. It's amazing, Bobby. Do you still hold that and, title today? No. no. Uh, what we What happened was, they came back to me and, and Brian said to me, he goes, listen, Bobby, we, we're not denying that you're a great bartender and all. I said, but the record was 151. And you more than tripled the record. Something's wrong. I said, well, I got the rules from Guinness and I know that I'm within those rules. Yeah. And so they went back to look at the previous record holder and he was there shaking and straining mm. and doing all this. And then I said, well, he did a great job in making yeah, great cocktails. Yeah. I said, but, and they said, well, we don't want to make a farce of the record. You know, we don't want to make a mockery of it. Let's relook at this. They said, how about this? How about if we did cocktails that have appeared somewhere on a cocktail menu in the U.S.? I said, okay, send me the list. I'll put it together. And then I worked with uh, Anthony Elba, Eddie Perales, and Gastel Martinez. And we worked together and they helped train me. You know, because we'd, all right, come in. They, these are practice guys. They always, mm -hmm. let's practice, practice, practice. I'm like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so we put them all in an order. So what I did, I would shake and strain, shake and pour and build. Those are the three mm -hmm. styles of cocktails that I was doing. I went after that record and, and there's a company out there called Flareco that makes a bar that folds up into a roadie case that you can transport everywhere. So it's a literally a portable bar that we're doing this on, on a stage at nightclub and bar show. And that old record was 151 or 179 was the record. And I did 253 different cocktails in an hour to beat 
that record. Yeah, that's awesome, Bobby. I mean, so either way, I mean, you did it with integrity and most of all, you did it with your big heart. Like you were yeah. just all, you were all in it to have a good yeah. time. So I it mean, was. that's also, you know, what it's all, what it's all about. Right. The, what is, the thing that to- meant the most to me on, on that, um, I was on stage doing an interview. And so what we did, we'd made those cocktails and take them away. So we've got tables full of cocktails on stage and all these different colors from using the DeKuyper flavors and things like that. And a guy came up with a handful of straws and he goes, you guys mind if I taste these? He goes, no, go right ahead. And, and I'm being interviewed and this guy's over there and he, he's tasting, just randomly picking cocktails and tasting them. And he turns around and he goes, hey, and we're like, what? <laughs> he goes, these are good. <laughs> That's funny. And the, the interviewer goes, what do you mean? He goes, no, I, I thought you were just pouring bullshit cocktails. He goes, mm-hmm. these are all, they're good. And I go, well, they're, you know, we're using quality spirits and fresh ingredients to make great cocktails. It's yeah. that easy. And he's like, wow. And I, I, for me, that, that was a big, big thing that day. That's so great. What is, what is your go-to drink? Mine's the BBG. Can you tell our audience what a BBG yeah. is? I love a BBG too. It's, it's very simple. You know, the, the highball craze is going on today. Mm-hmm. And, yep. You know, and with our Japanese influence, you know, from the company there, the highball machine is club soda. So their definition of highball is spirit and club soda. For me, the definition of a highball is a spirit and a carbonated mixer. And my favorite mixer is ginger ale. And I like mine with a little dash of bitters because it really accentuates the barrel notes and brings a little more spice to the drink. So it's bourbon, bitters, and ginger ale. Do you have a preferred bourbon that you like to use? I, I love uh, Bean Black earlier in the day, Knob mm-hmm. Creek later in the day. And, uh, and sometimes I'll use uh, either Maker's Mark or you know, Maker's 46. I mean, I, I drink it with Canadian Club. I mean, I'll drink it with tequila. I'll drink it with, uh, you know, our aged Cruzian rums, you know, Cruzian single barrel ginger ale, a dash of bitters is great for me. And that sounds so, but, but the BBG bourbon is, is my favorite. Yeah, that sounds really good. Is there any cocktails that you wish you never had to make ever again? No, I, I think, you know, anybody that, that wants a cocktail, I think, you know, while it's a great classic cocktail, I think it's kind of a disservice to, to the customers, the Long Island iced tea. Mm. I mean, while it's, it's great and made properly, you know, it's refreshing and it has, you know, a really great story behind it. I just think it's too much booze. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I haven't had to make one of those in many, many years, you know, which I'm kind of grateful for, but I don't think there's any cocktail that any bartender should ever not want to make, you know, and I've always been a big, not a champion of, but, I am not afraid of a blender. If you want a blended drink, I am happy to make you a blended drink. You know, and, and you know, working in, in nightclubs, you know, you'd have bartenders that walk behind the bar. The first thing they would do is unplug the blender. Yep, throw, throw, a, throw a spoon in it. Yeah, yeah. we're doing that. Yep, blender's broken. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I it's so that. easy. You know, it's just so easy. There yeah. is, however, you know, I was always one, especially when I first started getting out in the industry and starting to be known. I always said, you know, I'll drink anything anywhere, you know, 
being part of that USBG when we would go and, and visit other bars, you know, we'd always ask a bartender, you know, make me your favorite drink, make me your classic. I want to see what it is. And, and I, I'd always stated, I'll drink anything, you know, at least once. And, uh, I was at a party and someone pulled out a bottle from, I believe it was from either South Korea or the Philippines and it had a snake in it and it was absolutely terrible. Oh, does, it does I, not sound delicious. I don't know what a snake flavor is, but yeah. it doesn't sound I, good. I will, I will not drink anything with a decomposed animal in the bottle ever again. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> I mean, what do you, where do you see for the beverage industry in the future? You know, we're, we are still in this COVID era. Unfortunately, things are still a bit weird, but when we eventually fully come out of it, what do you see kind of what's next for the beverage industry or what do you hope yeah, for, for the beverage probably. industry? Well, I think what the, the pandemic has really showed us is that people appreciate simplicity. You know, we're, we're seeing, you know, the, the highball making that, that comeback with the highball, you know, which is in, in our industry, it's a plus one. But, you know, of course, as mixologists that we are, we're always creative. We always want to do something different. So let's say I take, you know, bourbon and club soda. Maybe I'll muddle some blackberries and some mint with it and strain that. And then that, that's a cocktail that I, I created for we were doing some work with the PGA and with Jim Beam Black. And so I called it a smash ball. <laughs> and I was at a, at a golfing event and, and created that drink where muddled blackberries and mint, and then added the bourbon and topped it with club soda. And it was at the, uh, the turn of the nine, you know, so people would stop and get a drink and then they'd go back out on the ninth hole and like, now smash that ball. And so that's how the drink got its name. So it was kind of fun, but seeing that simplicity and as, as you mentioned before, what has really, really come back in a powerful way is the hospitality effort. There's a lot of accounts that are opening right now that are struggling to get people to come to work. So you're having bartenders that may not be as trained as well or have the history behind the bar and they're struggling. And I would rather, one thing that I always teach behind the bar, I can teach you recipes. I can teach you histories. I can teach you you techniques. The two things that are most important that I can't teach you is work ethic and personality. Because a smile will go so far behind a bar. You know, my, my tagline, you know, we've all come up with our own little taglines. And, and mine is always shake it hard and shake it with a smile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I get people, you know, my cousin who lives in Wisconsin, she came out to visit. And, and now you're up and you're, you know, you're seeing bartenders, they, they have a mask on now. And I keep telling, you know, bar owners, and I, I go, the least you should do is buy a mask with a smile on it. <laughs> Just so we get that impression that they're, I know everybody's uncomfortable wearing the mask, but it's something that we're going through right now. Mm-hmm. But I think coming out of it, the hospitality is just going to be at the forefront. And I think on the consumer side of it, patience is coming to the forefront. You know, oh, they're becoming yeah. more patient with people, but they're still, people want to enjoy one another's company. And people want to enjoy, you know, when I go to a restaurant, if there's a bar, I'd rather sit at the bar than sit at a table, you know, because I want to enter, I want to see the bartender and I get an opportunity to interact, you know, as being, you know, 
not to put my brand hat on, but when I go to a bar, I always introduce myself. Hey, how you doing? I'm Bobby G. I'm the master mixologist from Beam Suntory. And uh, I'm going to be sitting here for a while. So if you have any questions on any of our products or anything you have behind the bar, you want some cocktail help, whatever you have, I'm sitting here. I'm, I'm here for you, you know? And I, I meet people at the bar, you know? And through that, I was a great example. I was at Nora's and they had a new bartender. He was working. So I was teaching him. And the lady sitting next to me, she turns to me, she goes, you know what you're talking about, don't you? And I said, yeah, you know, I help, you know, I kind of, you know, have an affinity for these bartenders. You know, I kind of take them all under my wing here because I, you know, I love Nora's, like, I'm kind of like part of the family. She goes, oh, great. So what do you do? And I told her what I did. And she asked her what she did. And she happened to be in town setting up Gordon Ramsay's new restaurants. And she goes, well, do you have a card? And I said, well, here you go. She said, well, we're not ready for the bar yet. We're still working on the design. I said, I'd love to help you. I said, you know, I mean, here's my card. You know, come in, give you whatever advice. You want training, you want spirits training and all that. I said, but really, I think most importantly, you know, we'd like to help you behind the bar, set up your bar properly. You know, and so we'll see, see what happens. It's, you know, it's just that interaction of doing what we do and, and having that passion. Because for me, the, the, one of the greatest things whenever I do a presentation anywhere is to have people come up, you know, especially consumers, they're always like, you're so passionate about what you do. And, and I, I love what I do. And, and it shows. And the people come up and they tell you that it shows. And for me, that's one of my greatest honors that I get today. Well, it, it's been an honor chatting with you today on Served Up. And I love that your motto is shake it, shake it with a smile. I, you know, it will be sooner than later when we'll get to take those masks off and have some conversations and see each other's, you know, smiles when we enter the bar. So I want to thank you, Bobby, from the bottom of my heart for spending this time with me today on Served Up. And I, brother, you know, just wishing you just a lot of peace and some great health. Um, during this strange time that we live in, man. Cheers to you. Thank you, Bridget. And cheers to you and your family and, and everybody out there. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!